Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for standing by and welcome to the LTS Minerals Corporation third quarter 2020 financial results conference call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. After the speaker's presentation, there will be a question and answer session. To ask a question during the session, you'll need to press star one on your telephone. Please be advised that today's conference is being recorded. If you require any further assistance, please press star zero. I would now let you the call over to Flora Wood, Director of Investor Relations. Please go ahead. Thank you, Denise. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to our Q3 call. Our press release and quarterly filings were released yesterday after the market closed and are available on the website. This event is being webcast live, and you'll be able to access replay of the call along with the presentation slides that have been added to the website at www.altiusminerals.com. Brian Dalton, CEO, and Ben Lewis, CFO, are the speakers for the call, and then we'll open it up for an open Q&A session. The forward-looking statement on slide two applies to everything we say, both in the formal remarks and during the Q&A. And with that, I'll turn over to Ben to take us through the numbers. Thank you, Flora, and good morning, everyone. Q3 royalty revenue of $16.2 million was up 25% from last quarter's royalty revenue of $13 million, largely due to copper prices rebounding from a low of $2.30 per pound realized last quarter to approximately $2.95 realized this quarter. We also recognized higher zinc volumes at Triple seven and higher copper volumes from Chimpata when compared to last quarter. Base metal revenue accounted for 53% of total royalty revenue in the quarter, demonstrating our leverage to copper. Offsetting the base metals contribution in Q3 was a 16% lower realized potash price as compared to Q2. We also experienced continued low thermal coal revenue due to the ongoing COVID-related impacts of reduced Alberta economic activity and related power consumption, but that was offset by two months of increased royalty-level ownership. Pass-through iron ore revenues from Labrador Iron Ore Royalty Corporation, or LIORC, continued to track lower as IOC again elected not to pay an equity dividend in spite of continued strong iron ore performance and cash flow generation. Brian will have more to say on these topics and our outlook for relevant commodity exposures. Q3 EBITDA of 12.4 million was also up 24% from Q2, with the increase following the revenue growth. G&A costs of 2.4 million are up from the 1.9 million reported last quarter with most of the growth coming from higher corporate development expenditures in the third quarter related to the Liberty acquisition 
and the re Renewable Royalties Business Joint Venture Transaction with Apollo. Nevertheless, our EBITDA margins came in at a healthy 77%, consistent with last quarter's EBITDA margins. Adjusted operating cash flow of $7.3 million this quarter reverses the trend in Q1 and Q2 of adjusted cash flow exceeding EBITDA due to the timing of income tax payment due dates that were pushed out by authorities this year due, due to COVID-related economic support measures. On a year-to-date basis, adjusted operating cash flow of $33.9 million is just under last year's comparable period, despite the lower revenue this year. This reflects lower cost of sales on Chapada stream revenue, lower G&A, and slightly higher interest charges. The quarterly net loss of $39.8 million, or $0.96 cents per share, includes a non-cash impairment charge of $45.6 million, or $1.10 per share. Adjusted net earnings were $3.6 million, or $0.09 cents per share. The main factor contributing to the impairment charge related to our acquisition of an additional 45% interest in the coal royalties LPs to take our interest to 97% for a net cost after adjustments of approximately $9 million. Prior to the purchase, we had collectively carried our share of the coal LPs at a value of $73 million and the incremental acquisition cost, therefore, resulted in a significantly lower weighted average carrying value, which prompted an impairment evaluation. Other considerations made were more conservative views regarding future Alberta power demand and the pace of potential power plant retirements and or natural gas refueling capabilities. Other non-cash adjustments this quarter relate to the dilution gain that resulted from Adventist Mining's successful completion of a $38 million financing. During Q4, we will continue to evaluate the impact of the Apollo Renewables transaction on our financial reporting. We also expect the Alderon receivership process to unfold in Q4. I'll remind you that the loan to Alderaan, our 37% share ownership position in Alderaan, and our 3% gross sales royalty on the CAMI Iron Ore project all have a combined carrying value on our books of $1 million. The current receivership-based sales process for the former assets of Alderaan, including the CAMI project, is ongoing. We had previously booked impairments to the value of these holdings upon initiation of the receivership process, but that may require upward adjustments based on the final results of the asset sales process, which, as Brian will further describe, we understand to have attracted strong interest. The Board of Directors declared a $0.05 cent per share quarterly dividend, and again, this dividend is eligible for our dividend reinvestment plan, which we announced last quarter for shareholders who are interested in receiving common stock instead of cash. Please visit our website or contact Flora for more information on how to enroll in this program. 
Finally, looking at the balance sheet and capital allocation, we ended Q3 with $45.5 million in the value of the project equity portfolio and $73.8 million in LIARC shares. After payment of approximately $9 million for the Liberty acquisition, our preferred security distributions and common share dividends, and the funding of an additional US $3 million to TG on a milestone-based payment, we ended the quarter with $16 million in cash and cash equivalents. We also have modest activity on our normal course issuer bid in Q3, and on a year-to-date basis, we have repurchased and canceled 644,000 shares at an average price of $9.45 per share. We have paid $15 million year-to-date on our term debt and have approximately $39 million in undrawn availability on our revolver. As Brian will discuss in greater detail, Apollo is expected to fund the next U.S. $80 million in renewable energy royalty transactions, which will reduce our near-term expected level of capital allocation towards this initiative. Subsequent to quarter end, we funded uh, $7 million to TGE, of which $5 million was funded directly by Apollo. Brian has more to say on macro conditions and a recent acquisition, and now I'll turn it over to him. Thank you, Ben and Flora, and thank you everyone for joining. We are certainly happy to note the improvement in revenue levels over recent quarters. While this has been accompanied by some headwinds, on balance, we believe that forward signals give reason for optimism that the worst of 2020 is now behind us and that a resumption of our longer-term positive growth trajectory is underway. I will start today by summarizing some of the highlights and challenges that occurred through the quarter and subsequent periods. We saw strong price rebounds begin to take shape across the base metals complex, but also technical issues at Chapada and 777 that have resulted in temporary production level declines. Potash prices averaged lower than in the prior quarter, while the outlook for global demand and production volumes from our operators became firmer. The operator of the IOC mine again elected to not distribute dividends to shareholders. However, premium quality R&R prices remained robust and resulted in strong royalties, while the potential of our interest linked to the CAMI project were also brightened. Turning to the electricity component of our royalties, we elected to take a non-cash write-down with respect to our electrical coal assets, while on the other hand, our most significant development during the quarter saw Altius Renewable Royalties receive an accretive investment and strong endorsement from major private equity player Apollo. A mixed bag of updates there for sure, but this yet again underscores the benefits of holding a well-diversified portfolio. Overall, the positives outweighed the negatives, and we re- remain confident in our positioning over all time frames. Allow me to break all of this down further and provide additional context to our outlook. The technical challenges experienced at Chapada and 777 were isolated, and solutions to return to full production levels in relatively short order are being implemented by both mine owners, whom we continue to view as top-tier operators. Lundin, in particular, appears to be making the most of the situation by advancing stripping and ore stockpiling, while also stepping up activities related to their expansion plan studies for Chapada. 
At Voices Bay, nickel, copper, and cobalt production has ramped back up from COVID-related curtailments, and the new underground mine development work continues to progress well. Earlier this week, we were pleased to learn that Excelsior Mining has begun initial copper recovery processes at the Gunnison Project in Arizona, in which Altius holds a royalty interest. Adventist Mining also closed a major institutional equity financing round during the quarter that paved the way for it to complete feasibility study work at its high-grade Curipamba polymetallic project in Ecuador, as well as to advance other regional copper porphyry exploration targets. We hold a royalty related to Curipamba and are significant Adventist shareholders. Base metal price strengthening continues as the challenges of a protracted period of low investment and new and replacement capacity is being met concurrently by expectations of higher global demand on increased electrification infrastructure and renewable energy investments. This is to come from both the public sector, a stimulus is set to be disproportionately allocated to these objectives, and the private sector, that is increasingly seeing outsized long-term growth emanating from these particular sustainability transition-based macro trends. The perfect storm for copper and other metals, such as nickel and lithium, that we have talked about in past updates, is indeed taking form and building in intensity. Both of our major potash mining counterparties have noted a resumption of demand growth and a better industry supply demand balance as we get set to close out 2020. Global agricultural conditions are markedly better than this time last year when a series of weather-driven events caused a sudden decline in fertilizer demand that led to price deterioration. Crop prices are strong and farmers around the world are now busy working to catch up on replenishing the nutrient content of their soils. Potash inventory levels have normalized as a result and prices have begun to trend back up. Iron ore prices have continued to hold up well in spite of better supply conditions as the year has progressed. This is due to strong steel demand growth, particularly in China, as post-COVID infrastructure stimulus measures there were very quickly implemented. While it is hard to assess for how long this increased level of demand will continue in China, or to determine when other markets begin to ramp up steel demand to meet their own infrastructure investment plans, we continue in any event to be long-term bullish on the disproportionate need for ultra-high quality iron ore types that we have been purposely aligning our shareholders with. We are noting a steady build of policy direction and capital allocation towards the goal of reducing the emissions impact of steelmaking and expect this thematic to only further accelerate. Ultra-high purity iron ore project products of the type arguably best exemplified by Canada's Labrador Trough Mining District result in natural reaction efficiencies and significantly reduced emissions when used during steelmaking. As such, they are in increasing demand as direct inputs and as blend stocks for ores from other regions, and in particular Australia's Pilbara, that are in many cases experiencing a progressive deterioration of average ore quality. Specific to the IOC mine, from which all of our current iron ore-based revenue emanates, this trend is being reflected in strong quality-based premiums that are not only linked to high iron content, but increasingly to low content of impurities such as silica, alumina, and phosphorus. IOC's role within operator Rio Tinto's overall portfolio also seems to be gaining in significance with a late September announcement by the major of the securing of facilities in North China that are being used to upgrade ores from its Pilbara operations with IOC-derived material. It is worth reminding here that a core part of our long-term attraction to IOC relates to its 
relates to its extensive and arguably underdeveloped mineral endowments, and its certainly underutilized transportation infrastructure. We have recently learned that a receivership process that seeks to sell the former assets of Alderaan Iron Ore, being mainly the feasibility stage Cami Iron Ore project, which is located immediately, immediately south of the IOC mine, has attracted significant industry interest. We also understand that a, that a proposal from an established mine operator is being recommended by the receiver for approval by the Supreme Court of Newfoundland and Labrador in a hearing that is expected to occur in the coming days. Further details of the proposal remain sealed at this time pending court approval. Altius originated the CAMI project and retains a 3% gross sales royalty related to any future potential production. Our efforts to convert the residual revenue from our phase-out stage Alberta thermal coal royalties into a long-term stream of renewable energy-based royalties achieved a significant milestone during the quarter. Apollo funds can now earn a 50% interest in the business in exchange for sole funding the next 80 million in approved investment. We held a specific investor call on this deal when it was announced, so I won't rehash the details today. The main subsequent update to note, however, is that the joint venture has announced its first investment in the form of a US 25 million expansion of an existing agreement with Tri-Global Energy. This was motivated from our side by a recognition that TGE has now either sold or has visibility on sales of sufficient product projects to meet our estimate of the number of creative royalties required to meet thresholds under our original investment amount, while at the same time having increased its total project pipeline to levels beyond that of the time of the initial agreement. As such, we were delighted to reach term, terms with them to essentially keep the process rolling, and we would hope to do the same again at successive points in the future as their business continues to grow and prosper. The Apollo announcement has also had a positive impact in terms of our deal flow origination work as potential counterparties continue to gain awareness of the royalty model generally and develop increased confidence in our particular capabilities to provide innovative, partner-like solutions for their businesses. We have also continued to evaluate the optimal methods and structures that ARR can utilize to fund its share of investments that are identified following completion of the earning stage of our agreement with Apollo. We have completed an initial assessment of options, and these are currently being more fully developed as part of an ongoing board-level decision-making process. As has been discussed with you at several points over the past year, this list of options continues to include the potential for taking ARR public as a pure play renewable royalty spin-out company. Broader market conditions have remained favorable for this possibility. That said, there are many factors that go into such a decision, and we continue to explore and evaluate how best to proceed to ensure that we maximize the exciting long-term opportunity that we believe ARR represents for shareholders. Lastly, but never least, we continue to see positive developments throughout our project generation business. Our portfolio holdings continue to attract strong interest from investors and gain access to broader pools of capital with which to advance their various projects. This will translate into a tremendous amount of exploration and development activity and news flow throughout the remainder of the year and into 2021. This will hopefully result in continued portfolio value growth and underlying royalty project advancement. We also remain active in our own internal exploration efforts and are continuing to find strong demand for the projects that are being generated, with several new project deals completed during the quarter, 
that add new equity positions and early stage royalties to our portfolio. Thank you, and with that, we'll open the call for your questions. Ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star, then the number one on your telephone keypad. We'll pause for just a moment to compile the Q&A roster. Your first question comes from Orest Vokada with Scotiabank. Your line is open. Hi, good morning. Uh, I wanted to get a little bit of better understanding on how the mechanics work on the renewables uh, deal with Apollo. And specifically, I'm just wondering, with the U.S. $25 million, uh, uh, new transaction that was announced that will be funded by Apollo, does that, does that effectively mean that they, is, uh, upon closing of that transaction, that they would effectively gain or earn in, I think, a, a 15.5% ownership of the renewables? Is it just dollar-for-dollar dollar, uh, percentage of that $80 million? effectively from an earning perspective? Yes, that's correct. And so the ultimate target here is $80 million, uh, of sold funding from Apollo to reach the full 50% uh, level. Okay, so there's no specific milestones. It's just percentage of dollars spent effectively. Morris, to be honest, I'd want to go through the details of the agreement to be absolutely certain on that but you know generally speaking that's correct okay i can thank you very it. much that's any fine. significant I'll update. again to ask a question please press star then the number one on your telephone keypad your next question comes from john Tumazos with very dependent research your line is open thank you for taking my question in comparing the quarter's revenue to a year ago, um, how much is the impact of the various prices? You noted potash was a big decrement. How much was the impact uh, adverse to volume from the virus? And how much was the impact to volume from either growth or depletion? single biggest factor uh, is none of those. In fact, it actually is a was decision of IOC to withhold, uh, or not withhold is probably not the right word, but to not declare dividends uh, throughout the year. So, you know, there's two forms of income that flow into Labrador Iron or Royalty Corporation, which we're a holder of, and that ultimately get passed through. Uh, there's the royalty amount, which obviously the operator has no discretion on. It's simply a function of production and prices. But then there's the equity level interest that Lyor holds. And, uh, you know, typically there's a pretty uh, uh, fulsome payout ratio that results to shareholders from that. But so far in 2020, I mean, that would be the single biggest difference, you know, quarterly and year to date. Uh, in our revenue. Uh, no doubt potash uh, prices have had a significant impact or down considerably year over year while volumes are slightly uh, are slightly up. Um, and, and I would consider the other you know, more COVID volume driven uh, impacts to, to really have been relatively minor. The major one would be at, uh, at Boise Bay, but that's still a relatively small royalty within our within our structure so if i were to pinpoint 
uh, in order, I'd say the dividend situation at IOC, which we obviously hope gets uh, reversed in Q4, but obviously don't get to make that call. Uh, potash pricing, and then beyond that, particularly in the you know, middle part of the year, uh, base metal prices, and mainly copper. I can ask another. I'm looking at the cash flow statement. The acquisition of investments is $68 million. How much of that is renewable, and what were the larger investments this year of a traditional mining and geology nature? Uh, the biggest investment there would have been a 35 U.S. million dollar investment in Apex Clean Energy in, um, I guess it would have been late Q1, early Q2. We'll convert that to Canadian and you'll find a lot of, a lot of the numbers. There were ongoing milestone payments made to Tri Global Energy as well. Uh, those related to the original investments, but the way they were structured is that monies were actually released and deployed upon them achieving um, you know, actual sales and uh, portfolio growth milestones. Uh, the only uh, mining related investments of note would be the uh, uh, additional interest that was acquired in the coal limited partnerships and then uh, some more um, modest incremental purchases of, uh, of uh, potash royalty interest in Saskatchewan, basically just some cleanup of uh, some small third party holders, you know, sort of a regular program that we're running. I can ask one last one. The broad question is how do you, select the jurisdictions for renewable energy investment. Yesterday, Fortescue Metals, which is predicting they're going to have a future energy or renewable energy company bigger than X, Chevron or Total, said that their chairman and deputy CEO are going to 47 countries evaluating opportunities. I guess the Sunlight is stronger in some deserts than others. Here in or in my township, there are cornfields converted to solar because the state subsidies are so big, even though you know, New Jersey is not as good as uh, Arizona for sunlight. I didn't put solar on my house because I didn't want to bank on the subsidies. I think New Jersey is more bankrupt than Puerto Rico. But how do you evaluate the different jurisdictions and uh, the best way to invest for renewable? Uh, well, right now, all of our investment focus is in North America. Um, and to be honest, that's as much as anything a function of the um, knowledge base that our management team has the, the networks of connections that, that they have and a sort of a strategic objective that we've had to try to perfect uh, the royalty financing model for renewables within what we feel is the most sophisticated uh, capital market that exists in the space right now. But there is still a longer term uh, strategy or plan to uh, 
uh, take the model further afield as the business grows in the long term. Uh, you know, if you want to get more granular as to where in North America we're invested, we certainly do a pretty rigorous evaluation of the overall portfolios of the um, developers that, that we're investing in. So, you know, there is some element of choosing, I suppose, in that, you know, we're, we're conscious of where their efforts and projects uh, are concentrated. But for the most part, it's pretty diversified uh, across the different, uh, the different grid networks in the U.S. Um, you know, even in New Jersey right now, it's with the cost of, uh, with the cost of uh, solar panels and the efficiencies having improved so much, there is an unsubsidized economic um, case for, uh, for these projects. But again, it's not the way it way it works with us is that we'll receive royalties from within significantly uh, diversified portfolios, and we'll receive them in the order that they're sold. So it's more of a market-driven uh, set of forces that will determine how our ultimate geographic diversity is going to shape up, at least within within North America. Um, and, and it has more to do with than just resource. It also has to do with factors such as um, interconnection availability, grid bottlenecks. There's a whole host of factors there that that, that go into that. But um, what I can say is that the sales of these projects is, you know, and the appetite for buying these projects from final sponsors or by final sponsors from the developers that we're backing is uh, very much economically motivated beyond uh, historical subsidies, which quite frankly are already set to, to roll off pretty soon. It's, uh, I take a lot of comfort in the fact that there's an economic and a rational economic underpinning to the order in which these projects are being sold and royalties are being created right now. Thank you. Thank you. Your next question comes from Brian MacArthur with Raymond James. Your line is open. Uh, good morning. Um, I'm just a little bit back to Orr's question. Um, the seven million you just put into TGE, Apollo did five and you did two. So a couple of questions. I guess I just want to confirm that brings your um, investment so far into TGE up to 24 million, I guess. So you have six million of your share to go. And secondly, is that the way we should think about it going forward? I mean, I, I thought originally you would put in the first 30 and then they'd put in the next 80, but you kind of split it, you know, five and two. Just, just is that how it works going forward or, or what was the rationale well, for doing it that way? Brian, the, the two million was actually a milestone payment that was made for, you know, solely on our account prior to the signing of the uh, Apollo deal. The next milestone okay. was triggered after the Apollo deal. So, I guess the other way of answering is that at whatever point we were when Apollo entered, um, you know, sort of stopped our funding requirement for remaining milestone tranches under the original investment and put that over to Apollo's ledger. I don't know the exact number, but I believe there was 8 million or so remaining at the time of the uh, Apollo entry. So the funding of those eight would obviously contribute to the towards those uh, towards their 80 million earnings. 
that Got number it. may be and up. Then, roughly speaking. And does the next 25 that goes in that you've announced post that deal then, I mean, the original TGE royalties were going to be 3%. Uh, are, are the new 25 kind of the same sort of thing, 3% royalties? Is that sort of structure? So, in fact, the 25 is a real true continuation, like the, the full 55 yeah. works the same way? Yeah, it's just, it's just an expansion of the whole uh, program, essentially. Uh, so we just, you know, there was uh, very little modification, minor tweaks here and there to the actual investment agreement. But as I tried to explain in the remarks, what was happening is that we were getting visibility on enough sales and royalties being created that we were going to soon cap out on uh, receiving new royalties just because of the success that they've had. And we obviously didn't want that to happen. We think that, you know, they've met our expectations uh, or gone well beyond our expectations in terms of the pace that they've uh, been able to bring projects to sale and royalty creation. Uh, we've noted that particularly because they were able to access our capital, their portfolio has grown to beyond what it was when we originally invested. So they were very happy to keep, uh, um, you know, using our capital to advance and grow their portfolio forward. They're obviously very happy with the relationship, and similarly, so were we. I mean, the bigger picture here, what, what I'd love to see happen is that in the case of that TG agreement, the APEX agreement, and even others that we might complete from here, is that they're not one-offs, that they're continuums that we can continue to keep funding their growth and development with partner-like capital, and they can continue to keep uh, creating royalties on our behalf. That would be extremely efficient for us from a business development uh, path going forward if we can not only rely on new transactions with new players, but uh, we can just continue to uh, reload on investments with, with those uh, groups that are um, you know, meeting expectations and succeeding so well in their own businesses. Great. Thank you very much. Very helpful. Thanks, Mark. Your next question comes from Craig Hutchinson, TD Bank. Your line is open. Good morning. Um, I just wanted to ask about the, the outlook for the, the funding you put to, to APEX. You've got three deals, or I guess three royalties already created with the, with the funds you advanced to, to 2GE. Can you provide any outlook in terms of when you think you might be able to serve, actually secure a royalty on, on the funding uh, provided to APEX? Yeah, uh, APEX is actually having a banner year. I think they're on target for more project sales than uh, – at any other point, which in some ways is pretty remarkable when you consider what kind of a year we've had. But what's important to point out here is that when we entered that agreement with, with Apex, and also with TGE for that matter, we looked through their portfolios and they identified projects within that were already fairly advanced in terms of uh, discussions with potential buyers. So it you know, was not, you know, wasn't going to work for us to try to interject royalty structures into uh, ongoing sales processes. I mean, that would have uh, obviously not been uh, well received by the people that they were already dealing with. So, you know, there was a carve out of projects or of what we call excluded projects that were, you know, more or less subject to prior sale already. 
And, you know, what that does is it generated a backlog of sales that they had to get through before next sale subject to royalty would be completed. So they're actually very close to reaching that point now, and we're optimistic that before year end, the flow will start to uh, develop of sales with, with royalties attached. And from there forward, it will be essentially all all uh, projects with royalties attached that, that would come out of their portfolio. But their sales have been remarkable. They've, they've been knocking it out of the park all year. And in fact, they've worked through that backlog of excluded projects uh, quite a bit ahead of schedule. Or more or less, they're not quite there yet, but very close to reaching that point. Okay, I appreciate the additional color. No problem, thanks. There are no further questions. Get up at this time, I'm the call back over to Flora Wood. Thank you, Denise. I do have one question that's coming from an investor who's on the webcast. And Ben or Brian, he wants you to speak to your estimate of the impact on the 777 and Chapada shutdown. So which quarter and anything you can estimate on quantity? Uh, ben, you can speak to the timing elements of that, I guess. You know, or at least correct me if I get this wrong, but with Chapada, there's a, a lag impact. So, you know, we kind of, when you see Q4 revenue, it really comes from Q3, and that's before there was the uh, the uh, uh, technical issues. So, in other words, we'd expect to see uh, much of the impact from the uh, curtailment of the, the reduced production in fact, in, the, in that case, in Q1, uh, that seems that's less of an issue at triple seven. So there are current challenges we, we would expect to book in uh, or, or note in in Q4. Before I go further with that, Ben, is that accurate? Uh, yeah, that's accurate. So uh, yeah, the only difference with triple seven is that the the zinc we get paid for as it's produced because there's a refinery there. So right. it's only the the copper would have a similar lag at triple seven as well. Gotcha. And then as far as the overall impact, um, what we've heard from the operators is that um, in in both cases they're still running, but at reduced levels. So Chapada has managed to uh, replace some of the down equipment, but there's only one mill running, and. If I'm not mistaken, they're estimating that they are currently running at around 30%, and that by sometime in December, um, that should be back up to full capacity. So I don't know. You can make your own estimates as to what that relates to, but probably 50% of production, depending on how the ramp up goes. Um, and uh, with regard to triple seven. Um, timeline is a little less clear, but they're similarly guiding to be back to full capacity by uh, by year end. So right now there is some production, but what's happening is that it's coming through up through the ramp. Um, so they're you know are constrained there. So obviously the uh, pulling of ore from the sh through the shaft is not happening at the moment, but there's still some production coming from the from the uh, from the ramp. The other thing I'll point out, I should say about Chapada, is that um, Q1 is typically a pretty weak uh, 
production quarter at Chapada because of uh, it's the rainy season in Brazil. And, you know, a lot of the bottlenecks and curtailments happen at the, uh, at the mine itself. And um, one thing that Lundin seems to be doing is um, um, advancing a lot of pre-stripping and, and uh, have continued mining levels so that they can uh, work from stockpiles once they get up and running, and I'm assuming anyway that that is uh, that should have a positive impact on uh, negating some of those mine level impacts that quarter one typically has. So I think they're again they're making the most of the situation and trying to fight things back as best that they best that they can. They're clever people, so I'm not uh, uh, I'm optimistic that they'll really minimize impacts here. And we do have a question on the phone. Your next question comes from Jacques Wortman with Lawrence and Bank. Your line is open. You might be on mute, Jacques. Oh, sorry. Um, sorry, Brian. Um, there was some pushback when, when Altius increased its interest in thermal coal. Um, some felt that it conflicted with the renewable energy royalty push. And now um, you've written down the carrying value. Can you just revisit the thesis or the rationale on the transaction from July and, and where that kind of sits now? Sure. Um, you know, funny enough, it actually was a bit of a driver for the write down because the uh, cost per percentage of ownership uh, implied by that transaction in buying out Liberty's remaining interest was considerably lower than. Uh, the original purchase price on the on the core interest. So when you weight average the cost, you know the cost across both purchases, uh, you know you get a, a significantly lower number, and that's what, in many ways, triggered uh, impairment factors here. Um, as far as the motivation for that transaction back in July, um, and the rationalization for it, you know. The factors that we're seeing and that have gone into our consideration of the write down were known to us at that time and factored in. So we continue to believe that uh, the rationale at the time was, was strong and that our expectation for a fairly rapid payback um, still hold. We, we obviously have better visibility on near term than, than long term. And uh, in, in rationalizing that investment, we certainly. Uh, put almost all of our weight on the very near term. Uh, beyond that, in terms of how it could be perceived to be in conflict with our broader goal of, uh, of phasing our own interest from coal and into renewables, yeah, I can see the point, but you know, the arguments other or against are that by picking up that additional interest, really nothing is going to change the mines are going to still run and operate at exactly the same pace, irrespective of who the ultimate uh, owner of that additional royalty interest was. So you know, it's not like there was any way, shape, or form that this was an investment that somehow could encourage or would enable a longer uh, life of the uh, of the assets. Um, beyond that, I guess you know the argument we made is that. At that point in time, 
we had already reached um, the point that we invested all of what we expected of remaining coal revenues into the growth of the renewables business as per sort of an early promise when we started the whole renewables initiative. And we're still seeing lots of opportunity and here was an accretive opportunity to um, and, you know, acquire more of those cash flows through this you know, final waning gasping stages in the coal business and, uh, and, and to reinvest. So more simply put, we didn't really see it as a doubling down on coal as much as we did see it as a doubling down on our renewables investment focus, just a way to, uh, you know, leverage a dollar because nobody wants to pay anything for coal and to take that dollar and to, uh, and to uh, further accelerate the, the renewables investment plan. Okay, thanks. And I guess just in terms of the really rough math here, if you're still carrying the thermal coal portfolio at call it 37 million combined, um, a 44.9% interest that you bought in July for 9 million is still worth roughly 16, 17 million. In other words, it still looks like it was accretive even with the right down yeah. taken. Yeah, I mean, again, the other thing about the it's more than just the weighted average. Price. We also took really conservative to, you know, the factors ranging from, you know, what's your prognosis for energy consumption in Alberta? What's the future gas price going to be? Um, and we took what uh, we believe are, are very conservative views across that. There's so many subjective variables um, that go into how things will play out with coal in Alberta going forward that, um, again, it's, it's a guess at best, but um, I think the approach we've taken is appropriate and, and definitely conservative. Okay, thanks, Brian. Appreciate that. Thank you. There are no further questions. Get up at this time. I'm going to call back over to Flora Wood for closing remarks. Okay, thanks. Denise and want to thank everybody for dialing in and for the questions and we'll look forward to talking to you for your end. Thanks everyone. This concludes today's conference call. You may now disconnect. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.